from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Chapter 3, Sunday, Paris. It was 3 in the morning and most of the lights in the hospital corridor were out. Brower padded down the hall in crepe-soled shoes. The doors into various rooms were all open. He could see the patients snoring and wheezing in the glow of the dim night lamps. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the second series of For Christ's Sake and uh, we are exploring another novel that Michael Crichton wrote under the pseudonym John Large, in this case, Scratch One. What is For Christ's Sake? Uh, For Christ's Sake is a podcast where we explore the entire bibliography of famed climate change skeptic Michael Crichton, chapter by chapter. Just his bibliography, or are we going to watch his movies and uh, television shows too? I'm glad you asked. Uh, we may we may divert our course into his uh, cinematic excursions at points. Please, please, let's 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 make it broader than cinematic. Let's say moving image excursions. And maybe, maybe, maybe we will even investigate his forays into interactive entertainment. But that is a matter for a later incarnation of this podcast. For the moment, we are square within the opening handful of chapters of Scratch One. Mm. Uh, I am Hugh, you are Hunter, is that correct? Um, can you look at look in the mirror real quick? Yep. But we are not alone in our endeavours today, are we? Um, yes we are. No, we aren't, for we are each joined, separately, but together, by a signature drink and a signature snack of our own devising. Not that we concocted or assembled the snacks from, like, you know, raw ingredients or anything like that, but we did decide upon them based on some sort of thematic connection that they had to at least this novel's first two chapters. Hmm. There's a roundabout way of saying uh, I've got some pretzels and I have I have a uh, glass of uh, port. Mm. A little early in the morning for drinking, isn't it, Hugh? Well, uh, I will say that this morning, because I've just woken up, as you may be able to hear in my voice, I also required coffee for this recording. And instead of uh, <laughs> trying to balance two precarious mm. uh, mugs or glasses uh, near the small space uh, at my desk where I'm recording this, I just put the port in the coffee. <laughs> so... Oh, God. <laughs> I haven't That's had a sip vile. yet. I've been waiting all this time, 17 minutes after preparing it. So it'll be lukewarm and befouled with port. A delicious cup of coffee. Ugh. I'm, I'm just going to quickly sip it now and see what it tastes like. 
It sounds like the most disgusting possible drink you can imagine, so. Mm, yeah, not good, but drinkable. <laughs> I used the uh, low-quality supermarket coffee that I had uh, stocked up on as a backup in case I could no longer access or afford quality coffee. And, uh, you know, it maybe improves it slightly. So, there you go. Mm. There's a life hack for you. If you're an alcoholic. <laughs> well, glad to see you've completely, you've started to completely break down. Uh, anyway, what do you have, sir? Well, I have, uh, and it's appropriate hour here for drinking. I have a cup of a sort of blood orange screwdriver cocktail that I've devised. Mm-hmm. And going with one of the character who does not appear in either her in this chapter or the next one will do. <laughs> the car. And I have a so blood orange screwdriver cocktail. And also I have a bag of delicious uh, salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm. Well, does that sound like a great uh, c- combination? I'll go even better with the pro stylings of Mr. Mr. Crite. Mr. Crite. Mm. The Crite. The Crite, so, you know? All right, so what happened in the first two chapters of Scratch 1 that has led us to this, the third chapter of Scratch 1? Mm. Uh, the question is, do I remember? I hope so. Um, there's a league of evil French Algerian people. Mm-hmm. Who want to prevent the sale of arms from Norway to Israel. Which is somehow facilitated by the U.S. government. Yeah, and also apparently the British and the French governments are involved yeah. to some degree. So to facilitate this, they've assassinated several intelligence agents and uh, businessmen associated with the deal. Okay, mm-hmm. And they have brought a German hitman named Brower mm-hmm. to finish off the the one failed assassination attempt. I guess there was two failed There was two failed assassination but attempts, but... Yeah. Um, but they're specifically targeting one yes. with him. Additionally, there is a American assassin named Morgan. That's right. Who is coming into France to assassinate the um, leader of the... Uh, Operation now. Does this book so far, based on these two chapters, have what you would call a lead character? It was unclear. I mean, mm. we could have theorized that one of the characters thus far mentioned could have come into focus as a lead character, such as Morgan, who is, uh, you know, one of the assassins, but on the uh, other side, mm. we're presuming that Crichton is attempting to portray Lissau and Co., the, the French Algerians as the antagonist of the piece. So we, we could have surmised that uh, Morgan, the American assassin, coming in to foil their plans, uh, might be the hero of the novel, maybe. But who knows? Mm. Except you already told us that none of the characters were the hero of the novel last episode, didn't you? Based on uh, a survey of the Wikipedia entry. Yes. Anyway, so yeah, we haven't actually met our hero, is what you're trying to say, right? Yeah. All right. So, as you heard in chapter three, um, Brower, the uh, the German assassin tasked with finishing the job, Brower goes into the hospital room. He knocks out the guard. Um, he doesn't kill him. He just knocks him out. 
And then he strangles the patient and uh, leaves. Yep, that's uh, pretty much all there is. Uh, I did detect a little bit of um, Michael Crichton's personality, which we both agreed was sort of absent from the first two chapters, right? Yes. You mean him bragging about his medical knowledge? Yes. <laughs> did, you, did you also detect this bit yes, of personality? Yes, I did. Uh, I thought the same thing. Personality? I went to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the bit in Odds On, which she noticed, which was, I know about scuba diving. I like all this nonsense, like, um, you need you need somehow to have this uh, somewhat advanced medical knowledge in order to be able to strangle, like, a half-dead person in a hospital bed. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Well, you just do it in kind of a complicated way now. I could kill him. I'm sure I could kill him. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but basically, it boils down to he walks over to this, uh, you know, half mangled body and pinches his artery until he dies. That's that's what this is. It's written in a very prolex and, um, you know, needlessly detailed uh, language, I think. Yeah. If you would agree with me there. <laughs> Which is the uh, the sign of someone knowing something about someone, something and trying to, uh, you know, demonstrate that they know it. Mm. So kind of strange in, in a book that is presumably just, you know, meant to pay the bills and go into the pulp grinder that he would bother, <laughs> like, putting this in, you know? There was also, like, an odd section of that scene uh, in which he talks about the fact that... Uh, this is Brower, I mean. He talks about the fact that he doesn't uh, tend to use silences because, as he reasons, so few people are familiar with the sound of a gun that it was rare for a listener to associate a loud noise with a gunshot. And that didn't exactly strike me as accurate, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know about you, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you have to believe Brower. He's a professional, probably Nazi, so... Mm, fair enough. And then he goes on to say, like, it might be a little bit different in a hospital, like, if there's a loud noise. Mm. A nurse would probably conclude that a patient had fallen out of bed, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure those sounds are quite distinct. <laughs> Special feels like coming from a room where someone is supposed to be guarding it, you know. <laughs> I also, I also thought the passage where he like meticulously describes the, the type of pistol that he was using was pretty funny. Because <laughs> I was like, who cares? <laughs> was Michael trying to read like an arms manual? Then I was like, I'm just gonna insert this knowledge in here for no reason. <laughs> oh my, my word counts a little under. Better insert well, a, a bunch of stuff about the water PP thirty six. It may be clever foreshadowing because he he talks about the fact that he's he has stuck with this now uh, outdated model because it had never jammed on him. So maybe later it will jam on him. And then there'll be a reason for this stupid passage, but otherwise... <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction here that it will not come up again. Just like in the last book, if we can refer back to the previous series, <laughs> Odds On, uh, in which there was this scene with uh, famed insult Peter Ganson <laughs> going down to the basement of the hotel to um, pretend to drive his car or some shit, mm. and then leave again, <laughs> and there's no reason for it to exist. It doesn't come back up. There's no mention of the car again. <laughs> I mean, if you read the circumstances under which Crichton wrote these books, it's it's, it's a little surprise to me that there's like stuff like that. It's just like you know, needless you know passages that yeah, like that he probably just legitimately forgot that he even set up something. Because <laughs> I don't know if it was this one or the next one that I read, but apparently he wrote this like in fourteen days or something like that. Wow, it's insane. That's not quite the speed of like Philip K. Dick, his most uh, amphetamine manic. 
He would like write them overnight sometimes. <laughs> that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, you can kind of tell what his his prose, you know. I know, but I've, I've I kind of like his wonky prose. No, I do too. There is something about it. I mean, and a lot of times he's like writing about like you know warpy reality and stuff. So yeah. in a way, it, it sort of fits it, you know. Yeah. Um. All right, so. I think that's about covers up the first little section, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we smash cut from there to what time and what day? Well, sorry, what day in what place? <laughs> Sunday in London. What happens there, Hugh? What character are we reintroduced to right now? Uh, Mr. Morgan. Hmm. The assassin. The American assassin. Yep. And he's just received a phone call from uh, his French contact, Armory. Hmm. And Armory's like, there's been a death. Uh, I'm assuming he's referring to the guy in the hospital who Brower just snuffed out. Yep. And this is going to delay their plan. So originally Morgan was supposed to fly into Nice uh, that day, I think. Mm. Um, but uh, in view of this tragedy, Armory tells him, no, delay it for 24 hours. So he cancels his flight, right? That's essentially all there is to that section. That is all there is to that section, you're right. And then... Who do we get introduced to? Is it our <laughs> protagonist? Uh, Can it be? Survey says. I think it is. Uh, yeah, if Wikipedia is anything to go by. And it was this. It was this point that my faith in Crichton's abilities returned. <laughs> <It's> restored. Because <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I, I did I do believe that last episode you were kind of complaining about the uh, ratio of you know hyper violence to uh, you know sexy stuff, which is what. Proved the uh, enticing thing about odds on at least at first, right? Yeah. At first. Were you happy? Were you? Were, were, you <laughs> were you happy to return to to Smutland in uh, this this particular little section? Yes. Um. Uh. So yeah, I, I was happy to to reacquaint myself with uh, non-rapey smut. <laughs> well, uh, at least not rapey yet. There is some rapey overtones here, actually. Yeah. We'll get to that though. But just, but just over toes and not just toes, you know? Mm. All right, so, uh, you know, Hugh, uh, rather than introduce uh, his character through, uh, you know, indirect prose, I think we should uh, introduce him the way that the book introduces him. What do you think? I agree. He's riding man proud. Come on, let's hear it right about now. For crying out loud. On the second floor of the same hotel. The telephone rang. Groping for the sound, Roger Carr reached out and clutched a firm breast. Surprised, he opened his eyes. Ouch, the girl said, sitting upright in bed. What was that for? <laughs> and this is this is even better than I had hoped, because uh, this introduces... Comedy smart. Yeah, this introduces, like, an element of sort of carry-on style uh, smutty humour. That was yep. somewhat absent from his previous work. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just entirely absent. Mm. I mean, intentional humor, anyway. Yes, and I'm glad that the I'm glad this particular thread of humor uh, persists beyond this paragraph as well. Mm. With the stewardess, you mean? Yeah, there's bits and pieces of it uh, resurfacing. Uh, there's another thing that we'll get to when, when we get to it. It might be in this chapter. It might be in the next one. We'll find out. Anyway, so yes, the phone has rung in the same hotel that Mr. Morgan was in, but this is a different character, Roger Carr. He has instinctively reached for the phone, 
but uh, owing to his position in the bed, he has landed instead upon, as I said, a firm breast, and startled his bed companion. The girl was annoyed, just to be clear, and says, was that your idea of a joke? To which we respond, no, that was Michael Crichton's idea of a joke. <laughs> Uh, then he's like, who is this girl? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, I think, I think I picked her up at a pub or she picked me up. So, you know, maybe this is a bit more progressive than odds are. <laughs> and then is she mentioned at all in the rest of this chapter? No, she's even deprived of a name. <laughs> she, more than that, she just vanishes. Mm. That's it. That's, that's, him remembering that is enough to void her from the novel. Mm. And Hugh, I think I think this sloppiness of uh to a details like this, this is very characteristic of this chapter. Mm. <laughs> uh, which is not true of odds on, I don't think. I mean either is like the weird like throwaway subplots that don't go anywhere, but there's nothing quite as as like, oh, this girl that I spent a couple paragraphs talking about is just gone without even a, a sentence or explanation at all. So anyway, we find out quickly that he has his own flight scheduled for Nice that very day. Why is he going to Nice? So he's a lawyer. He's employed by a law firm um, and they keep him around because he has good connections. He gets on well with uh, certain parties, particularly this mysterious governor fellow. And the governor is actually sending him to France to secure a villa for him. Mm. Is he, is it, was, would you describe him as a competent lawyer or a good one or one who was enthusiastic about his job? He's a reluctant lawyer, right. Mm. And uh, his, his youthful insouance. <laughs> insouance? His what? I'm trying to find a word that's like a fog <laughs> in my insouissance? mind. Insouance? Insouance? Is that the word I'm looking for? <laughs> what did I you tried. say first? Though? I tried. Uh, you said you're like insouance. <laughs> <laughs> it was very odd. Anyway, yes. Uh, so the governor responds to uh, Mr. Carr's youthful insouissance. Insouissance? Anyway. Why are you giving that a French spin? I don't know. It sounds like a French word. Should I look up how to pronounce it for you? <laughs> because, anyway, so the governor recognizes in Carr insouissance. a quality. Insouissance. 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 The governor recognizes in, in Carr a youthful quality that reminds him of his own youth. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a description of him that maybe will be relevant, um, given that we'll be spending a lot of time with Mr. Carr across the course of this novel, him being our protagonist. Um, so Crichton describes him as slightly debauched with a cherubic face and a mildly satiric air. Mm. Now, Hugh, did you get the same uh, author insert character as I did from this particular character? I did indeed. Now, there's a couple reasons for that, I think. One be that this character attended Harvard Law School, which Michael Crane did not attend, but he did attend Harvard in the Harvard Medical School. So. Yeah. And the fact I think you can trace on his um, unhappiness with being a lawyer to Michael Crane's unhappiness with medical school and not wanting to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So from his uh, hotel room uh, with the lovely lady being uh, done away with. Murdered by Crichton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Crichton was a serial murderer. We can get this going. He was a Zodiac killer. Um, Did the dates line up, actually? <laughs> what do you mean? He was alive during there, I think. There you go. That's enough evidence for me. <laughs> I don't know how old he was. When, when did the Zodiac killings happen? Like, 72? Oh, no, the first one. Uh, first one happened in 68. 
but Michael Crichton was born in 1942, so mm. he definitely definitely could have. And if you look at the picture, that could be well, It's a dead-on match. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Zodiacal was wearing glasses, and guess what? Michael Crichton wears glasses. Uh, the Zodiac Killer was white. I'm just going to update the Wikipedia page right now <laughs> with a new suspect. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's definitely possible. Yeah. I mean, you can't prove that it wasn't him, That's right? Exactly right. Uh, anyway, so. I typed Michael Crichton is the Zodiac Killer in quotes into Google. I got, I got no results, unfortunately. <laughs> That's good. It means that we have a... So it's on us. Yeah, we have a position to innovate in, you know? Mm. Anyway, so, because our guy is flying to Nice, what does he have to do to get to Nice, you He drives up to the airport in a cab. The the porter takes his bags. He goes to the check-in desk, interacts with a nice young lady who works there, uh, admires her legs at one point, carry-on style. And then, and then What? Why is the porter taking so long with his bag? Well, I don't know, Hugh. He should be here by now. But then he is there. Yeah, it takes him like five minutes or so. And uh, it seems like an unnecessarily long time to transport the Sorry, bags. sir. Yeah. That's my, that's my British accent. Sorry, sir. Well, there's actual dialogue if you want to quote it. There you are, sir. Bit of <laughs> confusion, you know, sir. Thought you said B-E-A desk. Sorry, sir. Exit, you know. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. I was transported back to old Blighty. Old Blighty? What the fuck does that mean? Anyway, uh, he, take, he he hoists his bag onto the scale, and by he, I mean Roger Carr. And he's like, this, this seems a little bit heavier than normal, but I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I did actually highlight this passage, but not for the uh, first bit. Because we get a little bit of uh, self-critique, I think, from Mr. Crichton? I think so. Mm, let's let's hear it. Right about now, for crying out loud. He shrugged and stopped at a gift shop to buy a paperback book. He wanted something light and amusing of no consequence. Just like the book uh, that we're uh, reading. Uh, uh. And also fittingly, and this is returning to something we discussed uh, during our Odds On series, Michael Crichton has gone on record to say that he wanted these books that is, the books written under the pseudonym John Lange, to be enjoyed in the same manner that one enjoys a frivolous in-flight movie on an airplane. Hmm. Perhaps like a, a particular uh, a film series that stars a uh, dashing British agent? Maybe so. Um, so after, after Roger Carr has uh, picked up his featherweight novel, we immediately cut to the plane heading towards Nice, at the point at which the co-pilot spills hot coffee on his crotch. It's kind of a bizarre transition, I have to say. Yeah, I think it's quite a clumsy transition, because I actually had to go back and reread a bit of it to make sure I didn't miss something. So did I. <laughs> but anyway, if this was a film, we cut straight from uh, Roger Carr with his paperback to the co-pilot of the flight uh, having coffee spilled on his crotch. Mm. Another carry-on style gag. You know, I've never seen a single carry-on movie. I can recommend them strongly. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe that. Uh, but I do understand what you mean. So. Okay. So yep. Uh, so he spills coffee on his on his, on his penis. This doesn't. This doesn't really matter too much, honestly. Um, 
It just turns out that the plane sort of has to make an emergency premature landing. Yep. And uh, we're introduced to a very important character, the stewardess. Called Adrienne. Hmm. Um, and uh, the way the way that she's described <laughs> is, is you know I've, I've never quite... seen a single Rocky movie, but <laughs> I still I can still do that. <laughs> yep, the way the way Crichton chooses to describe her is is quite bizarre. I think <laughs> I, um, I would agree with this. The sentence the the offending sentence is this: Adrian was a very stable unperturbably sexy stewardess. <laughs> yeah, it feels like there should be another comic there or something. Yes, like well, unperturbable, comma, sexy stewardess, right? Yeah. Not an adverb that somehow <laughs> modifies the sexiness that she Sexy, has. yeah. <laughs> yep. It makes it sound like her sexiness is uh, unperturbable, which is very odd. And I mean, maybe this is an archaic form of the word, but I thought the word was imperturbable. Um, I think you're right about that. There is no unperturbable that I can see in my dictionary, but there is imperturbable. There's unperturbed, right? Yeah, and so un- maybe maybe he was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, very odd, um, very odd little descriptor, I agree. But why does, why does this matter, Hugh? It matters because um, as she is trying to calm the rest of the passengers and get everything in order for this uh, landing, she comes across a sleeping Roger car who does not yet have his seatbelt on. And then what happens? Roger Carr had slept through most of the flight. He awoke when he felt fingers in his lap and opened his eyes to see a very lovely girl bending over him. Say, he thought, this is service. Eh? 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 But then, um, soon after your quote, Carr realizes that the stewardess was only tightening his seatbelt, and he says, oh, well. There's also another quote in this section as well that was... Uh, mm. <laughs> is this, is this, yeah. The quote, uh, since I read that one, uh, you could uh, read this one. The one that sort of, uh, let's say, brought back the questionable sexual politics of the last novel where you read. Yes, right? yes, indeed. Let's hear it. Right about now. He left the seatbelt the way it was and watched the girl walk forward, swishing her hips in a subtle, interesting way. Do girls become sexier when frightened? He wondered. Mm. <laughs> I was just like, I was sitting in bed reading that, or lying in bed reading that, and just out loud, because I live alone, I just was like, what the fuck? Come on, man. He notices that the stewardess is quite nervous, you. He thinks it's her first day. But in reality, why is she being so nervous? Is it, there is there a man with a gun on the plane, or? No, because the plane is landing ahead of schedule. Sort of an emergency landing. For some reason, she rushes everyone off the plane, says, leave your carry on luggage uh, where it is. We will fetch it for you later. There's no need to panic, but get off the plane now. And they do, right? They get off the plane. Yeah. They're quite a way away from the the main section of the airport. Uh, And then a, a few vans pull up to ferry them to the terminal. And then uh, what happens there? Uh, then the plane explodes. Well, what do you think was the source of the explosion, Neil? Uh, maybe the uh, additional weight that was somehow added to uh, Roger Carr's carry-on luggage. Hmm. That's what we're uh, extrapolating. Yeah. All right. Uh, and what is the last word of the the chapter? Wowie. 
And uh, do you think uh, that that summarizes your opinion towards this book so far? It does indeed. I must say, I must say that I'm much more encouraged about <laughs> this novel, having read this chapter. First, we have we have a, a likable protagonist, likable up until the point where he wonders if girls are more sexy once they're frightened. <laughs> well, he's likable. I do not find him likable personally. <laughs> he is introduced to groping a woman, but he's supposed to be likable. You can see that. Crichton is straining for that, right? Yeah, but but clearly that remark was also supposed to be like a wall. I guess so. Which, you know, just points to the ingrained misogyny of at least this period of Michael Crichton's prose. I think. Yes. I will, I will say that um, maybe he's not such a likable protagonist, even though he's clearly designed to be. But at least mm. we have a protagonist who is, like, not directly involved in the arms-dealing shenanigans. Because that's what I find I <laughs> yes. found hard to sort of get a grips on and, and care about. It seems as though that... This protagonist, unlike any of the protagonists in Odds On, or Jake specifically, who's the main character in Odds yeah. On, I think, uh, does not seem to be some sort of cold-blooded, you know, psychopath. Yeah. So. It sounds like he's just going to be the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. He's going to be Hitchcock's the wrong man. Exactly. All right. Um, have any other comments you'd like to make about this particular chapter here before we say... Sayonara. <laughs> Is that how to pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, you got it. No, thank you. I've been practicing. Before we say, I think more fittingly, given the country we're in, ciao. Adivadeci. Or au revoir.